0: on the way here I have um, two emotions as I think about doing this Um, first of all I'm humbled that you um, would be willing to come and hear what I have to say Um, I hope that it meets your expectations to um, help kind of inform my presentation I did do a non-scientific survey of some teachers um, around me to find out what would be helpful to know Um, so some of you in the audience participated in that survey so thank you But second, I have to admit that um, I'm a little nervous. I teach at Calvin, and my population is minimally interested 21-year-olds who um, sometimes stare at me from behind their laptop screens, and they're thinking to themselves, do I have to know this for the test? So do you have to know this for the test? No. Um, It's refreshing um, to speak to a different audience, but you are also professional educators, and so that does make me a little bit nervous. Um, So hopefully this will go well. Um, Let's just go through a little bit about what my um, goals are for today. Um, When people talk about pharmacology, they always have to disclose if they're being funded by anybody. um, So I am not. um, I have no conflicts of interest. So my goals for today. um, Talk a little bit about my own um, experience and my own family experience um, with the use of these medications in our children. Um, And then I kind of think I have a unique view on this because I I live with this in my home, um, but also work in this in my career. And so we'll talk a little bit more about this shortly. Um, And then it truly is my desire to think about how can educators and medical professionals collaborate. We so quickly build silos, right? This is the education world and this is the healthcare world. But I feel like we're at this stage where there's really nothing new on the medication horizon. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So the next step then is how can we do a better job of bringing those two things um, together? So more to come. Um, And then we'll try to answer any questions you have. So a little bit about my story. This is my family. You may recognize one of the people who's in this picture, um, who's at the convention um, today as well, actually in this room. So in 2000, um, <laughs> there you go, just, we'll just get that over with, right? Um, in two, the year 2000, when I was uh, 28 years old, I began working in a private practice um, in Holland, Michigan, as a, a nurse practitioner, and I loved it. I felt um, it was really where God had called me to be. Um, and so I was excited to begin my career and so when I think about my career in 2000 and I think about my career in 2019 it might look, if you took a moment to reflect on your own career somewhat similar Um, we did a lot of, in 2000, you know, a lot of illness and disease treatment and management and stuff and we're still doing that but if I ever reflect on my day now my day has become a third um, to a half Um, mental health um, management um, and diagnosis and those sort of things so it's been a real journey in 2003 and 2006 we were blessed with two children both of whom you see on the screen as well Um, our daughter maggie is 16 she's a um, junior at south christian high school and our son christian is 13 and he's a seventh grader at Iron center christian In 2009, um, I was quite perplexed at what I saw happening in my practice setting. Um, I was seeing, again, more and more need for mental health, diagnosis, treatment, management. I was seeing problems with the way the system was set up to deliver care. And I had an opportunity in 2009 to go back to graduate school and to try to learn more about that and ways to manage that. Um, That led me to some dissertation work that looked at um, the way we deliver depression care um, in primary care settings. We can talk more about that in a little bit. Um, But then, as God would have it, um, sometimes what you're doing in the one hand crosses over to what you're doing um, at home. And so our son, Christian, um, entered the school system and... um, We had kind of this this idea that things weren't going very well. Um, We kind of had that idea already in preschool. In young fives, um, it was becoming more and more clear. And um, by the time he was in kindergarten, it was becoming very clear. Um, And... He followed a very typical boy diagnosis for ADHD. So the boy diagnosis was hyperactivity, can't keep his hands to himself, can't keep his mouth shut, can't function on the bus. Um, And um, through the help of a very um, loving, Um, kindergarten teacher who might be also in this room right now, Um, we came to uh, the realization that um, Christian was not going to be successful academically or socially um, unless we stepped in. We had done everything that, um, that we could do outside of that. When we brought him to his pediatrician, his pediatrician said, what took you so long? I saw this two years ago, and (laughs) I chuckled and said, well, he's my kid, like, we wanted to try everything else. So um, our son started on ADHD medications uh, in kindergarten, which is very young, um, and somewhat even controversial. Um, But he did, and I have to share my mom heart a minute. I'm a uh, prescriber and a provider. My husband is an educator. We loved our son, and we knew this was the best thing for him. I'm going to get emotional in a minute. But um, giving your child the mind-altering medication is really hard. And um, I'm sorry. I, I remember crying that Saturday morning because we were going to start on a weekend just in case it didn't go well. Um, I and mean, he, Mommy, this is yucky, and I don't like this. And that's a really hard thing. Um, but anyway... Get it together here a minute. Um, Through the course of a couple different medications, we did find a path for him, and um, he continues to do well, although that path has been a little bit crooked in the last couple years. In 2013, um, as God would have it, our daughter, who was in sixth grade at the time, experienced what you would consider a very typical girl presentation of ADD. So it was going well for her until... She now had to manage multiple teachers, multiple classes, had to start to read and produce written work, um, had to try to organize all of these things together. Um, And so here we went again. I will say it's much easier when you deal with this with a 12-year-old who can already swallow pills. You don't have to try to teach them to do that. Um, And so our journey with her began um, in sixth grade. In sixth grade for our son, um, we spent some time revisiting his diagnosis and realizing that while ADD was part of the package God had created him with, um, he also had some um, anxiety layered in that. And so while we were treating the ADD, if we didn't try to get a handle on his anxiety, we weren't going to get anywhere. So as we talk more about the medications, I'll bring some of that in as well. I want to just provide a little bit of a provider 10,000 foot view um, of kind of the healthcare system right now. I encourage you to look at this link at the top that I put in here. What this link will show you is the nationwide shortage of child and adolescent psychiatrists, um, particularly short in the Midwest, or if you look in under-resourced states. So if you want to get care in Washington, D.C., or in the West Coast or the East Coast, you're great. In the Midwest states, you're in trouble. My practice site is in Ottawa County, um, Michigan. Um, This website says we have five child and adolescent psychiatrists. I would be interested to know who those five are because I can only think of three right now. Um, All three of them are older than 50 years old. Zero of those three psychiatrists accept Medicaid. Forty percent of the children in Ottawa County have Medicaid insurance. So that's the current situation in Ottawa County. It's not that different in Kent. It's not that different in Allegan um what's what 's happening then is primary care providers are becoming the frontline providers for child and adolescent mental health, which is clearly what i 'm seeing in my practice. Um, but what 's happening is that that kind of happened before we could make some changes in the way pediatricians and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants were educated so The educational pendulum has shifted now, um, but there was a lag time in there. So a lot of us had to play a lot of catch-up there. The state of health plans, the current thing um, employers are doing to save money um, and to make their bottom lines match is to institute very high deductibles for um, insurance plans. You probably know that, right? Many of you probably have one. Here's the problem. My son takes um, Concerta, um, 72 milligrams a day, in its generic form. That is $550 a month. That's generic, um, and we do that times two in our house. Um, if we had a high deductible plan, um, we would be out, you know, thousand dollars a month. We would meet our deductible, depending on what it is, very soon. Um, We're fortunate we have good insurance, but I work with a lot of families who really struggle with that number every month. And so as providers, we're struggling to help families in that. And we have a few resources, but it's been a struggle. The state of reimbursement. um, Pediatricians um, make money, if you will, by the number of patients they see per day. Um, Pediatricians don't have, in nurse practitioners, practitioners, big... um, Procedures that um, you can do that are well reimbursed. So our um, income is based on numbers of patients you can see a day. The problem is, or the way, the reason I put that up there is because we get these beautiful results, like from um, the Christian Learning Center or from Brains or Pine Rest. They are beautiful 40-page documents full of insight and everything that has been done. It takes a lot of time to read those. Most of us are reading those at night after we put our kids to bed because that's not reimbursed time in the office to read those in preparation for your child's visit the next day. Um, And that also then limits the numbers of those um, visits you can do in a day because you just don't have a lot of reading time. Um, complex care management, we'll talk a little bit about this. Um, it also comes with the challenges of coordinating care. Um, if I send a patient out of my practice to get counseling services, so I use um, Pine Rest a lot, I use Hound Hospital Behavioral Health a lot, I use Winning at Home, these are just some of the tools I have in my toolbox. Um, those care models right now are silo delivery models. Um, And so what happens is if I send my client elsewhere, I don't ever hear if, did they go to counseling? Have they missed appointments? Are they making progress in counseling? It's very difficult to coordinate that care. If I'm coordinating their medication management, what's happening on the other side? What's happening as a result of that is my practice has just hired a social worker who's doing counseling within our office. Um, and so it's a, it's a cross the hall deal. So Melody and I can talk about our, um, our patients and we can read the same notes. Um, and so there's a lot of challenges in reimbursement in that but we're trying to work that out right now. And then the last thing, I was just talking to my students about this this morning, is the MAPS system or scoring. Um, in a response to the opioid epidemic, um, the legislature got involved to try to figure out well how can we, how can we help this problem? Um, I, I might show a little bit of bias in that I think we're in a little bit of an overcorrection right now, um, making it very difficult to pres- prescribe controlled substances. I work in a practice that has 12,000 patients. So if you figure at any given time, we have maybe a little less than 10% of our patients on stimulants, and all of those prescriptions have to be refilled every month, we just processed how many, say we process 1,000 prescriptions of the month. When um, the state of Michigan puts in a three-step prescribing process now, effective six months ago, um, where we have to run a child's MAPS report with every prescription, we then get a secure code. Both of those codes go into the prescribing system. You've just created a lot of work. Um, And so it's become a very complex system. Um, So, two truths and a lie, I play this to my kids sometimes. I hope that the, the answer to this is somewhat obvious, um, if you will. Um, the Y is A, but I did put this up here to help kind of um, combat a myth, and that is um, that dietary interventions are successful or helpful for children with ADHD. There is some small um, evidence probably for fish oil um, or DHA, There's probably some small evidence to decrease the amount of red dye that is in foods, Um, but other than that, nutritional interventions alone um, are not successful in the treatment. Um, What is very true is that ADHD is a complex change in brain structure, function, and signaling. Um, And then making the diagnosis requires the input of two professionals from two of the child's environments. So if you ever hear of um, providers who are talking to parents on a one-dimensional view and making a diagnosis, um, you need to leave. Um, That is not accurate. They should never be done. You need the input of a second professional. You need the teacher input. You need the daycare provider input. You need something else to help you round out that picture. This is a. It's short, um, but I thought it was really good, and it gives you a break from listening to me talk. Um, I try to do this for my students, like every eight minutes or so, right? Um, so, strange. In, um, ADD is a, a problem of structure, function, and signaling. Now, structurally, um, we can show all of these changes on MRIs, PET scans, things like that. At this point, um, those are not diagnostic because we're looking at function and signaling as well. And the only way right now to function and signaling is through the use of those standardized tests. But I thought this was really good and short enough to be worthwhile. So let's see. We're we'll cross our fingers. Everybody cross. Is it going to work? Oh, sound. Can you hear me? Attention, deaf. I said hyperactivity
1: disorder, or ADHD, as it's commonly known. About 1 in 20 young people around the world. It can have a major impact on life at home, in school, and with friends. Symptoms of inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity can reduce a person's ability. associated with a series of abnormalities in the development and function of parts of the brain. Let's look first at the cortex, the brain's surface layer. In normal development, the cortex, which plays key roles in memory, attention, thought and language, gradually increases in thickness before reaching a peak during teenage years. Scans have shown that in children with ADHD, the cortex generally develops more slowly, particularly in frontal and temporal nerve regions, which are important for memory and controlling behavior. Typically, the frontal cortex, along with other major parts of the brain, are smaller in children with ADHD than in those without. These different parts of the brain do not operate in isolation, but interact extensively to form networks, controlling functions such as language, attention and movement. The activity of different networks increases and decreases to allow different functions to take place. For example, while you are watching this video, activity in networks involved in processing information will have typically increased, while activity in networks involved in mind mind will have typically decreased. In a person with ADHD, the activity of these networks is impaired and connections within the networks are disrupted. and when we look more closely at the communication between these networks there is also disruption in the release of the chemicals dopamine and noradrenaline which are responsible for relaying messages between brain cells overall when children with ADHD carry out particular tasks some networks are not switched on enough while others remain switched on too much. Research from around the world has shown widespread differences in the development and function of the brain in children with ADHD. While we can't yet use brain imaging to diagnose the disorder, the more we can learn about ADHD in the brain, the better we can understand the symptoms that children with ADHD experience in everyday life.
0: The piece of the kind of the medication or the, the treatment pie that I'm going to talk about is here. But what I recognize and what all of us in the healthcare industry recognize is, that, is that's just one piece of the puzzle. Um, the, piece, the other pieces of the puzzle, the school based interventions and the parent child interventions, must happen for true success. So please don't think anything that I talk about today is the answer to this problem. It is a piece um, of the ADD pie. So what's new in the area of ADHD medications? I said just a little bit ago, actually not very much. Um, What's new for ADHD medications is the way that um, Big Pharma is playing with the way things are released, um, trying to minimize side effects and maximizing the length of the day. There are two, st- still two major classes of the stimulant medications. The methylphenidates, so that is Concerta. Um, it's probably one of its older ones. But then the, these are all the other ones. And you can see that it's now coming in patch form, liquid form. What I'm interested to see, um, and this is actually coming out right after the first of the year is this new medication called Jornay. I don't know who names these things, but Jornay. (laughs) Uh, Jornay is gonna be the first ADD medicine that you give at nighttime with a 10-hour onset to the one it starts to work. If you think about it, we ask kids with ADD to do a lot of higher order things in the morning. Um, so in my experience, get dressed, eat your breakfast, brush your teeth, put your shoes on, grab your lunch out of the, um, get to the bus, keep your mouth shut on the bus, keep your hands to yourself on the bus, get off the bus at the right stop, right? Like, you know, you, I don't think about these things, but I, I've witnessed these things through my um, son's eyes. And so the thought is, what if this medication worked when kids first got up? Instead of kids waking up with no medication on board, having to wait 30 to 45 minutes you know, to get up, eat their breakfast, then take their medicine for things to work, what might that look like? I don't know. The jury's out yet, right? This is coming out shortly. Um, the other um, class there is the amphetamine salts then. Um, so you recognize some names on there. Um, Adderall, it's newer cousin Vyvanse. Um, Adzenis um, and Cotemplar are made by the same company um, and they are working a lot with delivery. So, Can we, sh- can we slow down delivery to make the, these kids' days longer? Um, we sometimes see kids struggling with that. Um, statistically, the effect size for stimulants is one. What does that mean? Um, statistically, that means that they are very um, effective uh, when they look at um, versus um, placebo studies. This right here, I linked this up in my PowerPoint. Um, It's just a medication guide. What's interesting in the medication guide, so on the first page here, um, these are all the methylphenidates. These are the relative um, strengths. So for example, Concerta 36 milligrams, if you were to put that same patient on Cotempla, what would that look like? Because you know it would be too easy to have all doses line up nicely. Um, so we actually have this in poster form in about 10 locations of our office um, because who can remember that Um, Vyvanse too, Vyvanse is very popular right now so if you're um, taking a child from Adderall to Vyvanse, how do you do that Um, so we have these um, prescription things available to us so I linked that up if you wanted to take a look at that Um, so here's just the names again. There's not a lot new, um, but what's new is these companies trying to figure out how to minimize side effects and maximize delivery. How do they work? Um, they basically work the same way the stimulants do. What I showed here is here is a synaptic neuron. Um, and both of these medications, through little bit different ways, um, keep more dopamine and norepinephrine a lot, or in the um, the quick video I showed, he called it noradrenaline. That's because he's English. Um, Norepinephrine um, would be what we would say in the US. So what do those neurotransmitters do? Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that helps us with learning, that helps us with mood. Interestingly enough, it's also the neurotransmitter that gets people with Parkinson's disease into a little bit of trouble. Um, When they don't make enough of it, you see movement and speech problems. Um, Dopamine is our reward center. It's our feel-good center, Um, so it keeps more dopamine around. They also keep more norepinephrine around. Norepinephrine um, is also a mood medication. It's also um, an energy medication. Interestingly enough, though, when people are very sick in the hospital, we put them on norepinephrine to keep their blood pressures up, so their blood pressures don't tank. So as a result of that, um, kids with ADD are at risk to have high blood pressure problems, and that's one of the parameters we need to watch. Uh, We need to know it's normal at baseline and that they didn't have any trouble once they started um, going on um, ADD meds. The dopamine transporter, while I'm on the screen, I just wanted to talk about the dopamine um, neurotransmitter a minute. Dopamine and nicotine are very closely related. Um, so kids with ADD, and we have been had very um, frank conversations with our daughter about this. Your brain craves dopamine. It just does. At its baseline, it's a little dopamine deficient. ADD brains are. Um, we give you these medications. It makes more dopamine. But the other thing that will do that is nicotine. Nicotine very strongly binds in there, um, creates a more dopamine around. The more dopamine it makes, the more nicotine receptors it makes. So that makes you crave nicotine. So that's where I think we see a lot of this vaping epidemic, where we see um, cigarette smoke um, in young people. Their brains crave it more than um, their unmatched peers. And um, if we do not treat their ADD um, with stimulant medication, they will find a way to treat it. Um, And we also have to have frank discussions about that. These kids may vape once or twice and find themselves addicted, whereas their matched peers may not. There's also some non-stimulant medications that are out there. You may have heard of the um, one atomoxetine, or Stratera. Stratera um, is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, so it does not work on the dopamine receptor at all. Um, it actually came to the market as an antidepressant a long time ago. It never worked very well, so it got put back on the shelf. Uh, and actually there was some research from uh, Western Michigan um, that brought it back out of the shelf um, and is now being used as a non-ADD stimulant, or non-stimulant. And then there's the um, alpha-2 drug. So this is intuniv or clonidine. Um, you'll see that the effect size for these is much smaller. So do they work? Yes. Are they as effective? No. Um, But these are other choices for kids who may need more therapy beyond what um, the stimulants can do for them or they don't tolerate stimulants because their blood pressures go up or they have problems like that. I'm going to talk about the black box warning um, when we talk about the antidepressants in just a little bit. How do these guys work? Um, Very similar uh, mechanism of action. They're working in that synapse to prevent dopamine and norepinephrine kind of reuptake, so you have more of these neurotransmitters hanging around. So how do we go about this? If primary care people have become kind of the de de facto um, mental health experts, uh, how do we go about this? We need an evaluation from somewhere so be that a teacher evaluation be that um, a learning system evaluation um, something we need evidence that both the parent and a second um, environment are showing problems um, sometimes it's interesting to get these back um, the, prob- the parent um, says problems all over the place the school says they're fine or vice versa um, And so we look through the evaluation materials and make an appointment. Appointments can be as much as a month out depending on schedules at primary care offices. Usually then that starts a long discussion about the diagnosis and um, the choice of medication um, initiation. So choice of medication, someone in my um, non-scientific poll said well how do you decide where to start kids medication wise? I will say that is both an art and a science. Um, we it tends to be a bit provider preference it tends to be a bit who in your family is on meds and is that going well um Or it is can you swallow pills or can you not swallow pills or will you do a liquid? So it's kind of, I wish I could say there's a black and white treatment. We do this, we always do this, we don't do this. It's not true. Um, That is an art form of the choice of medication. The dosage is tricky as well. I use this um, example with my patients all the time. I say the easiest thing you could ask me to do right now is treat strep throat. I have a test that says you have it. I know how many milligrams per kilogram of body weight you need. I know how it comes and I know how your body is going to metabolize it. Simple, send me home, we're done. It's the absolute opposite in ADD. There is not a strict milligram per kilogram dosing. So you'd want to say "Oh, this patient weighs this much, they're going to need this much. Kids metabolize at different rates. What they eat causes them to metabolize at different rates. I can see little kids on big doses of medicine And as that prefrontal cortex grows, sometimes we can pull that dose back. So I see 200 pound juniors in high school be on a smaller dose than my 50 pound um, third grader. Um, So the dosage is very different. We also have conversations with parents about side effect management. Um, Number one, headache. Number two, weight loss. And number three, sleep difficulty. Um, Those are kind of the big three that we see. Now, what's tricky with ADD anyway, or HD, however you want to say it, is these kids at baseline have sleep problems. They don't sleep worth anything, to be honest. Um, And so did the medication make that better or worse, or how do you know? How do you know if the medication made their medication day too long, i.e. they can't sleep, or made it too short, and so their sleep problems are just ADD-related? Those are tricky things, um, and I'll sometimes say to my patients, I wish we could pull a recipe card out of your brain, read it, and know exactly what, what we're going to do, but that's the art of what we do. We have to have lots of conversations. And then to making sure that the parents understand that this is not the fix. Um, Pills, um, someone wisely told me, do not treat skills. This is a piece of the puzzle, um, but the rest of the pieces have to happen at home and school. This should enable some of those other pieces to go well. And then follow-up appointments are so important um, for that weight loss side effect. Uh, We put our son on um, ADD medication in kindergarten and he lost a significant amount of weight um, in those first months to the point where um, we were almost concerned and we're considering um, bringing it back, but we found some ways to pack in calories. Um, So simple things like going to whole milk um, and whole chocolate milk, you think, oh, you're giving him all this sugar? Well, we needed calories. Um, And we also prepared to feed him from the time he walked off the bus until he went to bed. Like continuous feed. Um, Because we knew he didn't eat hardly anything at school, and he came home nothing short of hangry, um, so it was like Feed the kid, um, so we can all survive the night. So these follow-up appointments are so important. And man, the management of follow-up appointments is tricky because if patients don't make them or parents don't make them, how do you handle medication refills? Are the refills dependent on making the appointment? Or are they not? Um, So we actually now have, in our practice, we have a case manager who helps us deal with this. This patient no-showed for their follow-up appointment. Can you call them on, get them on my schedule? I need to see them. This is their last refill until they show up. Um, so I actually just went through this I guess I didn't realize I was one step ahead of myself um, blood pressure monitoring is also really important so it's not just weight we have to be sure your body is handling this okay are we on the right mat at the right dose and are we getting a long enough day um, so this is where we need school feedback because what they look like at 10 o'clock in the morning can be very difficult, different from what they look like at 2 o'clock in the afternoon so trying to figure out if their day is long enough how can we make their day longer um, if needed The other thing that is so important for um, us in the healthcare industry is that we're watching for these comorbidities to start showing up. Sometimes it's really hard when you're seeing a patient for the first time to see everything that's on the plate. So, once you start treating one piece of the puzzle, sometimes more puzzle pieces come forward. So, you may start to see depression, anxiety, some obsessive compulsive disorders, sleep disorders, and so continually monitoring those things. Remember that kids with ADD or HD will have more depression and anxiety than their unmatched peers, and so it's very important for us to have a constant eye um, on those symptoms. I don't, I like this. Um, This graphic but I don't like its title um, because I don't think we actually have to explain ADHD to teachers I think (laughs) teachers know what ADHD is there's no question about that but I like the graphic um, because it shows you know what we're seeing the tip of the iceberg the behaviors um, there's so much more behind those behaviors. Um, and this is where all of those good school-based interventions come from that, that we can't really get with meds, right? Um, not learning easily from reward and hungry punishment, impaired sense of time, weak executive functioning. Um, I can fix, yes, the medications will bring us a ways in that, but those are the life skills things that, um, that kids need to learn. And we need to help them learn. The parent view, um, I have to switch um, gears here because this is kind of one of my mantras. Having kids on stimulants in 2019 is a part time job. So I want you to just get this parent view a minute. Um, now that the MAP system has clamped down, refills have clamped down, things are very difficult to get. Um, you know, you get the initial evaluation, your prescription, so you go to the pharmacy with your prescription. And the first time, it's easy. Um, because they give you your medicine after you prove who you are to the child and give them your your driver's license and your date of birth and all that stuff. So that's that's the easy part. Um, Sometimes the difficult part is cost. I already addressed that. Um, But the second two um, things, insurance regulations and prescription regulations are the trick. Um, These prescriptions can be filled every month plus or minus two days. So for example, my son is on the 17th right now of the month. I cannot refill his prescription on the 16th. Nor can I call the pharmacy for a refill on the 16th. Um, and they will not process it, they can't. The state of Michigan doesn't allow it, period. Your insurance won't fill it, can't do it. So I call on the 17th. You have to call every time um, for a refill. If not, call your provider first, and then they send it to the pharmacy um, because they can't put extended refills on controlled substances. So sometimes I feel sorry for myself in that, oh, this is such a pain in the neck, and then I remind myself I have a phone that works, I have a car, I don't take public transportation to the pharmacy, Um, I have a husband who can watch the kids at home while I do this because heaven forbid you had to drag these kids into the pharmacy with you, Um, that would be kind of a nightmare, Um, and I can pay for it. Um, So I think about the 40% of kids um, in Ottawa County who have um, Medicaid insurance whose parents read at or below the fourth grade level uh, who try to manage these systems, and they're very, very difficult. So long-term stimulant use. Um, There's some emerging evidence um, about um, brains, um, that there's increased white matter um, in kids who've taken methylphenidate for a long period of time. I already said there's abundance of evidence that if we don't treat teenagers, especially their ADD medication-wise, they will find a way to treat it. Um, And so that could look like nicotine, that can look like marijuana, and that can look like alcohol. Um, And so our stimulants-controlled substances? Yes, um, but these things also carry with them um, a variety of risks as well. Um, Over time, um, kids can develop some tolerance so they can, they're on a dose for a while and you think they're doing well um, and then they start to, either they outgrow their dose or their dopamine receptor gets a little lazy and they need a little bit more of the same dose to get the same result. Initially, there's some growth concerns about their kid, these kids. It looks like their linear growth slows for a little bit, and then their bodies get used to that. Um, their growth hormone kind of center um, adjusts, and we see their growth. We see them meet the final adult growth that they probably would have anyway. Um, they just might get there a little bit slower. So that is what I have about ADD. Before I go, I'm just wondering time-wise, um, does anybody have any questions as we kind of get to the halfway point? Question so you you talked about
1: uh, evaluations coming from school. Are you talking like rating scales thing, or natural yeah. like yeah. psychoeducational
0: uh, actors, patterns, yeah. um, Vanderbilt, any of those sort of things coming from school? Yeah, those are so helpful, especially once a child is on meds to start to see, okay, where have we made progress? Where are we going? Sure. So so helpful. Yeah. yeah. How much evidence is there um, about the brain changes? So that's a little bit of an emerging science. Uh, We're entering this whole new period where we can start to see brain structure change with some of the advanced evidence or advanced imaging techniques we have. The problem is, as these imaging techniques are emerging, we don't have the baseline data from 10 years ago on some of these kids or five years ago. So I think we're going to have more evidence going forward. Um, for actually some good changes in the brain, um, but again, those are only structural changes, and we have to remember that ADD is structure, processing, um, and signaling. Um, so it's a little tough to say. I don't have. I think that's an emerging evident, um, area of research. Yeah. yeah. Um, as you see children go through your practice, do you see as they get older, do you see more of them come off ADD meds, or increasingly? Um, I want to go back a minute because I forgot to say something about that. Um, it, it is our practice, if you will, or um, a lot of the things I say is that I don't really believe that kids outgrow ADD. I think it changes as they get older. And for some of them, their doses may go down. Their prefrontal cortex starts to grow and mature. They start to display less impulsive, hyperactive-type things, but they still have that inattentive piece. The research about kids driving with ADD um, is impressive. Um, And this is, in my opinion, and all of these things here, um, in the opinion of our practice... Why ADD is a 365 day a year diagnosis, not a Monday through Friday diagnosis, um, and we like to um, convince people to stay on those medicines, even if you're not in school. So the other thing is, as we transition these kids to college, we usually have a long conversation with them because what if you have night class, or what if your first class in the day doesn't start till noon, or how do we make your day long enough? So how do we? What are your different medication taking strategies? Um, to kind of get you where you need to be and how can you recognize that too. Because so we need to get those kids thinking and advocating for themselves as they enter adulthood. Yeah.
1: So in the discussion about ADD and ADHD in the medical field along with medication, is there any discussion about the science of neuroplasticity and neuroplasticity uh, therapy programs like the Aerosmith program?
0: not familiar with the Aerosmith program can you
1: based on the science of neuroplasticity uh, you do all of these activities to uh, to
0: retrain the brain Mm -hmm. okay Um, so bio or neurofeedback Um, neurocore is a big company in Grand Rapids that does a lot of biofeedback Um, So there is very weak evidence for that um, in ADD. Um, The evidence looks like while you're doing it, it works. Um, So, And if you want to keep doing it, um, you can maintain that effect, but it looks very difficult to maintain the effect once you stop the therapy. Um, And insurance, at least in our area, has been slow to get on the bandwagon. I think they're getting there slowly now. Um, so there's been some in my reading of it in my understanding of it, in fact the American Academy of Pediatrics just republished their practice guideline standards in October of 19 so they just came out like a couple weeks ago and there's actually no mention of that um, of the neuro or biofeedback as a treatment strategy, Um, so that's what I know at this point, there could be more research out there but I do not recommend it to patients
1: question um what comes up a lot with the people I know who you know they have ADD but they don't want to take meds either mm-hmm. the child doesn't want to or the family doesn't want to deal with it um and they say things like there's no way I'm taking Adderall you know it's so addictive I don't want to put myself in that position how what do you reply to that what is a good
0: yeah so I think that's tricky. Um, What we try, or I'll use a little bit of a motivational interviewing type um, tactic with those patients about identifying, well, kind of, well, what's the problem? Um, So is the problem that you have no friends because you can't play well with others because you can't keep your hands to yourself and your mouth shut and can't reciprocate friendship well? Or, boy, you're such a bright kid, but you look at your grades. I mean, that's going to be a problem over time. So trying to figure out what it is to them. That might be the ticket, right? Um, or might yeah, be how the you, the how gateway. I
1: reassure them about you know the addictive qualities. You know? mm-hmm. I like what you said. How if you don't you don't treat it, you're going to find a solution in another yeah. way. But what about worrying about becoming addicted to the stimulus?
0: Yeah. Um, so tolerance is more of a problem than addiction. Addiction okay. is not really a true problem. <coughs> or tolerance meaning that you need more of the medication to get the same. Um, approach. The other thing that sometimes we can convince parents to try um, is it's a pretty quick on and quick off medicine. So it doesn't carry over much day to day. So if you can say to parents, can you do it for two weeks? You know, because you know, within a day of taking it, it's out of your system. So it's not like it's going to be in your system for weeks and months. So can you take it? And let's just see. Let's just do an experiment. And sometimes if it's the parents who are saying that, Um, they are going to realize the peace has come over their home. So maybe their child won't hit their sibling in the back seat of the car all the time. Or um, like simple things, or actually stay in their seat at the dinner table. Um, and if they can start to recognize some of these things, or if you say to your child, "I need you to take out the garbage, get the mail, um, and I don't know what, um, hang your backpack up," you know, some of these kids off meds cannot do a three-step direction. And so, if you can try to to convince it with something they feel like they're really struggling with, or the children's worship teacher won't let them come to children's worship anymore because he's so disruptive. This is this is our life, um, you know. Well, maybe I'm um, Meds he could. Um, so I think it's trying to figure out what would be the ticket um, and reassuring them that a short trial might be worth it. Just see. Oh, yeah, back there. You mentioned
1: a little bit earlier about how, um, especially kids moving into like later
0: elementary, middle school, um, keeping an eye out more for anxiety. Yes. And depression, you know, because they're just at a little bit higher risk for that. Mm-hmm. In the medication world,
1: what are you seeing in terms of treating that? Like, if that is identified in, say, a 7th or 8th grader that mm-hmm. you're seeing more symptoms of anxiety or depression, mm-hmm. are you seeing an increase in that ADD or ADHD in that, or are you seeing another medication coming in with that to treat those specific... So, patients?
0: you're actually foreshadowing my next... A couple slides, Um, but we see a second medication come in because if you drive the stimulant in anxiety you drive the anxiety Um, if you keep saying oh the child's anxious um, but boy they're really inattentive more stimulant makes that child more anxious Um, and so sometimes you need to pull that back and address the anxiety and so that's actually where we were with our son about a year ago um, realizing that boy he was really inattentive but it wasn't just ADD anymore Um, And so we had to add. So we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Great, we've got 15 minutes. 15 minutes? Ah, okay. Last question here, and then we'll go on. Um, What's your response to parents who say, I don't want to try stimulants, but I want to try this homeopathic, this ally, this
1: essential oil...
0: Can I just play my hand a minute? I can't stand the essential oils movement. <laughs> I just can't even stand it. But that's not professional for me to say. So, as <laughs> a professional, well, I'm sorry. What did name? Somebody- oh, okay. Here's the, what I might try: is let's make it objective, right? So if you have an actors or a conners. You could say to the parent, you know, this is a standardized tool. So let's do this today, and then let's do it at the end of two weeks. And you do this every day. Um, And let's just see if there's a change. Because it might be a way to objectify what's happening, um, to say, versus saying, oh, well, we don't think this is helping. Um, It might give you a little bit more teeth, um, so to speak. Um, because if it's truly helping, then the standardized test should show it, right? If it's a truly good standardized test, so. All right, I'm going to go on um, because I do want to hit on um, depression and anxiety. From the medical perspective or from my seat, depression and anxiety are the, the imposter diagnoses, um, what does that mean when I say that? That means that they very rarely come to me as depression and anxiety. They come to me as um, recurrent stomach aches, recurrent headaches, fatigue, uh, missing a lot of school for whatever reason, um, and we know kids need to be in school, so get the school. Um, or it comes as um, panic attacks, or actually it comes as shortness of breath is what it comes in as. And then a lot of times through some good asking questions, you can figure out kind of um, where that's coming from. So we call it, or I call it the imposter diagnosis because it very rarely comes to me on a, a, a platter. But if we're looking at um, depression and anxiety as standalone diagnoses or as comorbidities to ADHD, um, as a rule, females have more of these things. Although males with ADD are going to have more externalizing um, comorbidities, they're going to have more of the conduct disorder, oppositional, defiant, those sort of things. And females are more likely to have the internalizing anxiety and depression. So outside of the ADB world, it's about a 20% prevalence for depression. So prevalence meaning all teens who are struggling with a diagnosis, not new diagnoses, and anxiety up to 30%. Um, And a big thing that's um, entered our world is universal screening for depression um, at every visit, regardless if you come in for a sprained ankle or if you come in for your well-child visit, um, you need to be screened. So the million-dollar question is, does universal screening over-identify it? Are we over-diagnosing? I don't have time to talk about that. I'm not sure that there's a good answer for it, actually. Um, Two truths and a lie. Um, People cannot just get over it. Um, We have to remember that suicide is the third leading cause of death among adolescents in the U.S. This hits home with me because the door that opened to my professional career as a nurse practitioner opened because a teenager of one of my colleagues committed suicide. Um, And so she needed to take some extended time off, as God would have it. I was graduating around the time there was this opening. um, But that's ultimately the circumstances that led to my first job. Um, and these are also complex disorders. I'm going to skip, these are short video clips if you want to um, watch these about, um, in, for the interest of time. I have a love-hate relationship with technology. My students know it too. So sometimes I have to ask the 21-year-old in my class, like, how do I fix this? And they go, Professor Lovers, do this. Went, oh, okay, thanks just forward past those. My apologies here. Alright. The treatment for both depression and anxiety is similar. Um, The first line medications are the use of medications called um, Clay, can you fix this? I'm the 21 year old in (laughs) our house. Make it happen. I don't know. Um, so the, the treatment for both are the same. It's the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. What does that mean? Serotonin is the thank you. That's fine. Is the um, chemical in our brain that makes us feel good. That causes relaxation. Um, and when we have more of that neurochemical around, we feel better. Um, So treatment for both depression and anxiety is similar. We tend to categorize these things into mild, moderate, and severe. The trick with that is that there's no agreed-upon definition as to what is mild, what is moderate. I think everybody can agree with what severe is, but it seems to me that mild and moderate is quite fluid. I can see kids having a pretty good day, and I think they're okay today, but when I talk to them, in the last two weeks, they've missed four days of school because they've had such horrible stomach aches. We've ruled out all medical causes, by the way. I'm not jumping right to this um, diagnosis. Um, So it seems kind of... um, kind of fluid to me. So treatment for mild depression or anxiety is actually not medication. Um, It is um, some sort of therapy. um, Cognitive behavioral therapy um, first came about by Dr. Aaron Beck. Um, The treatment challenges, I already talked about the silos of care The fit of the teen teen to the um, therapist is huge. That's why I tend to only work with a small number of them, so I get a sense of who's who and how are we going to fit. And then also the buy-in of the family. Um, They have to believe that this is going to be helpful. Um, If the buy-in is low, um, your likelihood for a good treatment outcome is also low. Um, And then modes of delivery of this therapy are an area of study. So my dissertation looked at, well, what if... Um, a nurse practitioner, i.e. myself, could deliver this therapy in the office if I could be trained to do that. Um, It it didn't work that well for a number of reasons, but I'm still not sure it's impossible, but there's a reimbursement hurdle to that. Um, That's another lecture. So um, we don't have time for that. So the most researched SSRI is fluoxetine, and this is the only one to be approved by the FDA for the use in children and adolescents. Um, fluoxetine is very good at putting more serotonin in the synaptic site, serotonin makes us feel good um, all SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and remember I said a little bit ago adamoxetine or stratera is an SNRI selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor have a black box warning on them you must talk to your families about this or they will not take it because they're gonna get a big piece of paper from the pharmacy that says, from the FDA in 2006, there seems to be some concern with putting um, adolescents and children on antidepressant medications because it seems to make them feel better. And so when they feel better, are they more likely to complete a suicidal act or less? It seems to me like a giant chicken and the egg conversation. Were they gonna commit suicide anyway? Did the medication really make a difference? How do you know? So this created this big uproar um, in the medical community around the time that came out. And the uproar has not totally gone away, although some newer research is looking like the meds weren't the problem after all. Now we're putting the chicken after the egg or before the egg or something like that. Um, But there seems to be a lot less nervousness about prescribing now. Um, But the warning still comes on the package uh, when parents pick it up at the pharmacy. So if you don't tell them, they won't take it. The treatment, writing the prescription, I always say is the easy part. Writing the prescription um, is just as much an art as writing the ADD prescription. Um, What I try to do um, is have a conversation about what are your target symptoms and what symptom I'm trying to get rid of. If the patient has depression and is very low energy, I'm going to use a different med than if they're anxious and can't sleep. I'm gonna use a different med than if they just have overall day-long misery, that is both. Um, Side effect management, we know that the longer the patients take these meds, the better they feel on them. But you have to get them to buy into that. So if you have a stomachache on the first week of your medicine, you may call me and I will tell you I'm sorry and that must be miserable and I will feel sorry for you, but I will not change your medicine because you have to take it to get over that hump. If I change your medicine in the first week, then you're going to start that all over with another medicine. In the end, we chase our tail and don't get anywhere. We have to do a lot of teaching, too. Americans love quick fixes, don't they? I take this medicine, and I feel better. And ironically, that's the case with the stimulants, right? I take it at 8, and by 8.30, I can tell that it's working. Um, It's not the case with the antidepressants. And um, we think it's 6 to 8 weeks. 6 to 8 weeks is forever in the life of a teenager. You tell them 6 to 8 weeks, they look at you like, you have got to be kidding me. You have not had anything better than that? And I say, I don't. So we have to manage the expectations. Um, they are not going to feel better tomorrow. They also need the buy-in, though. In order to be better in six to eight weeks, they have to take it six to eight weeks. So they can't quit at day 10. They can't quit at day 7. The other thing is the importance of therapy. There is probably one of the first and the biggest studies that still has been done. is called the TADS study, which is the Treatment of Adolescents with Depression study in 2012. Um, It's a um, 600-adolescent multi-center study, and they took depressed teenagers, and they they said they were depressed by screening them on this, this instrument, and they broke them into four groups. So for one group, they did nothing with these kids. For 12 weeks, they did nothing. For another group, they put them on Prozac or fluoxetine. They started them at 10 milligrams for a week, and then they put them up to 20. The second group they only sent to therapy And it was a very structured cognitive behavioral therapy. And the third group, they sent to therapy and put them on meds. So at 12 weeks, which group was the best? Therapy and meds. Yeah, they outpaced the meds group all in all. At one year, um, the meds only group never caught up. It was the therapy and meds group that outpaced at every standpoint. So to say to somebody, take this med, you're going to get better, you are, going to get, you are going to feel better, but not as good as you're going to feel if you're willing to do some therapy. And there's some different theories on that. I have a colleague who will only prescribe antidepressants to someone in therapy. I don't have that approach because I think you have to buy in. I can't make you go. I can't make you love it. Um, but I can coax you that way over time. Um, and so that's this approach I've adopted, not necessarily saying it's the right one. That's kind of what works for me. Uh, Follow-up visits. We must see these kids back. It is malpractice, in my opinion, to write a prescription and say, go be well. I want to see you back in three weeks. I want to hear about your side effects. I want to hear about your sleep. I want to hear about whatever it was we were trying to make better, knowing that it's not all going to be better yet, um, but we should be on our way. This is what... I feel like is a little bit of a too simple view um, of um, primary care depression treatment because it assumes um, it assumes that a lot of your patients respond at six to eight weeks. And so sometimes um, you have to make some changes out there. So I like to see them at three weeks and then at six weeks. Um, and I'm a lot of times playing with doses. Try not to change too many meds before eight weeks. Um, And I usually, this is my own preference, I'll make one med change and if I'm still not um, hitting it right, um, I'll refer to psychiatry provided I can get there. Um, So this is just a kind of a flow chart. Oops, I already did that one. Wrong button. All right, Where am I doing for time? It is 3.15. Um, my last thing was just going to be these things show up in kids with autism at even greater rates than you would guess. There's the three A's, autism, ADHD, and anxiety. You see those three together all the time. Um, and so thinking about that as a special population too. Um, I apologize that I went so long. Um, I will be available for any questions though if you want to um, ask a question. And I thank you for your attention this afternoon. It was a pleasure.